0: Welcome to the Game Dev Show. This is a podcast by game developers for game developers where we discuss everything game dev related. If you're into design, code, marketing, or just interesting topics in the game dev industry, then this is the place for you. This episode of The Game Dev Show is sponsored by me. If you want to learn how to build multiplayer games and you're not sure how to start or how to get it done, go to Game.Courses and check out the Multiplayer Mastery Course. It's my latest course on advanced game development where you'll learn how to build both a peer-to-peer racing game and a Diablo-style RPG with inventory abilities and spells and a whole lot more. And if you're a new game developer or just getting into the industry, check out the Game Programmer course. It'll take you from zero experience to the point where you can build and deploy a fun local multiplayer game. You can enroll in both of them at Game.Courses today. Second, 2024. It's been a-, a while. We're on episode 160. And um, I'm not sure everything we're going to talk about today, but it should be a fun show either way. I think that there's some interesting stuff that's been going on obviously constantly new games um and lots of more fun layoffs we can always talk about as well so (laughs) good morning and uh hello we got andrew here powell greg corvallis and story here with me i realized i don't have name plates i have to figure out how to how to get name plates to show up in here um but yeah welcome everybody thanks for joining us if you're here with us live don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and say hello in chat and if you got any questions i'm sure we'll be watching and answering a whole bunch of those along the way um yeah so how's everybody doing today any um big news or updates anybody wants to mention or share before we get started
1: no big updates for me nothing at all no. huh well, nothing I mean, there's do, no. there's there's you know sales <clears throat> on the asset store with dragons, and I have dragons in that. And there's a mega bundle that has some cool battle sound library stuff. Aside from that, okay,
0: yeah, I did send out that mm-hmm. dragon um, asset sale to everybody too. It looks like a, a pretty cool one. I mean, I'm dragons are like my favorite all the time anyway. And I was telling you, I, I still want to really make weird. a a dragon game together. I feel like we could have yeah. some fun with that. Just make them run around and. Yeah, I got a couple of random ideas that are all probably terrible to talk about on stream. But <laughs> I think that would be cool. And then that new bundle did look really good. It was like 97% off, um, a ton, ton of stuff. And then I also shared out that other bundle. So I'll make sure those are linked down in the description too. If you haven't gone and checked them out, you should definitely yeah. do that and go grab the uh, the free publisher of the weak asset. Is there anything else going on that... Um, was not not a sale this week. Anybody get into anything new, trying anything new, um, come across any cool new tools, assets, or games?
2: Yeah, I'm making a math game for Legends of Learning. Um, so they're a site that has a bunch of um, education apps for schools, and uh, you, they have a whole long list of learning opportunities. Uh, they have a big spreadsheet, and you can pick different categories, you know, science or math or whatever, and different grade levels and that sort of thing. And um, and then if you, you pick one, they send you basically a developer contract and um, a template for a game design document. You have three weeks to submit a game design document. And if they approve it, um, you have to get them a build within, I think it's three months mm. after that. And their their design specs are pretty, pretty tight. Like the uncompressed build can't be more than 30 megabytes. Uh, and it has to be able to run on Chromebooks and iPads. And your game gets added to their catalog of games. And as long as it's performing and getting play time, you stay there and you earn revenue for it. But you also own the IP for the game. So if you want to, you can publish it anywhere else you want to. Um, so it's, it's it's pretty cool. Um, a guy in the Mastermind group that I'm in, uh, Manny has already published one game with them and he's working on a second one. So some of the assets that we've gotten recently, like those... The ones you were calling um, kind of like Power World-looking monsters. Yeah. And the tune numbers. Um, those are some assets I think would be really cool in a math game. And I drew inspiration from an um, arcade game we used to play at the laundromat back when we were poor and didn't have a washer-dryer. Where you had to stomp on bugs that were crawling in, like steal pieces of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> So you stood on a platform with these tiles that you had to stomp on. So there's a lot of cardio in that game. Uh, but in this case, instead of stomping on them, they'll they'll each have a little floating equation above them. And if you saw the equation, you'll basically chase them away with one of those animated numbers. You know those tune numbers. Um, so you're basically trying to defend your 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 food items from marauding Power World critters.
0: That sounds cool. And you said it's this page, right? Legends of Learning?
2: Yeah, Legends of Learning. Um, and then, yeah, there's a bunch of uh, other pages I think you sent you that are specific for the developer. You know, like their, their design specs, technical specs, and the whole process of picking a learning opportunity and, and going through the game design document and all that stuff. Huh,
0: that sounds really That's cool. cool. I, I didn't realize that mm-hmm. was... a. Uh... I think. And it it seems like something people might be pretty interested in. So you just make a game. Well, you go through the process, submit. Games for these are pretty simple, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the one that I'm doing, um, it's going to be, like, solving multiplication or division. And it's basically find the missing number. Like, 8 divided by what equals 48? You know, that kind of thing. And give them multiple variations of that you know, to help them see the correlation between the multiplication and division. Mm. Uh, And then it will get progressively harder because the spawn rate of the critters that are coming to steal your food will get faster. And then their movement speed will get faster. So they're going to have to get quicker at solving the the equations. And their score is going to be based on how many food items they save, which is really correlates to how many equations they solved correctly.
1: When I was a kid, I used to have to play Math Blaster for at least I think half an hour or an hour, maybe half an hour of Math Blaster in order to play an hour of Nintendo. Yeah,
2: my kids played
1: that. Yeah, JumpStart was my jam. All right, all the K through twelve CDs.
0: <laughs> That's funny, um, Andrew. There was a question in chat about um, no. one of the things in the in the bundle there that ninety seven percent off bundle, the fluffy part. Um, and I thought that that might be a good one for you because I know you've actually used and kind of integrated it in with some of your own stuff, right?
1: Yeah the 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 um, I did a stream with the uh, Daniel Zeller, the publisher, at one point. Um, what was the question? I don't, I don't see the question. Oh, they're just
0: wondering if the. Um, what did they say specifically? Has anyone tried that hair fuzz asset in the bundle?
1: Yeah, it works well. So, the my Minotaur actually has. Um, I didn't do it. Unfortunately, I never got around to actually doing it myself, but Daniel created the fluffy, uh, what do they call it, not sculpt, but there's a term he uses the, 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 the file for fluffy for the minotaur. And so, um, the minotaur character has that ready to go. And what's neat about it is you can, um, go to, can, I, you can bring up the minotaur if you want. Uh, I can't seem to chat and send you a link here, but, um, Uh, what's neat about it is that the Minotaur has clothing that, you know, armor and stuff and the grooming tool allows you to like put negative space on the fur over that. So it doesn't peek out. So it looks really nice. Um, and you can make short hair and long hair. So all sorts of different things. I think it works really well. Um, the developer is really nice. I think is a unique proposition for sure. And, uh, you know, if you need that kind of thing, you can, you can use it on any mesh in the asset store. So, you know upgrade the stuff and make it make it something different
0: I just, oh, I just, uh, I just um, somebody mentioned and I'm seeing in chat apparently there's another error with this this new streaming setup and there are two streams with, uh, <laughs> with chat going at the same time so let's try to get everybody into the same one so if you're in the one that says episode 159 um jump over to the one that says 160 because that, that that's the the correct one and possibly why people had problems with uh with the giveaway before in fact it won't even let me modify the chat in the 159 one so i'm going to end the one that says 159 if here and i'm going <laughs> to drop the link into the other one so if you're in that one so switch over to the other one where we're at i have no idea why it's uh Hold on. Let me just triple check though that it is streaming to both. Yeah, it it is streaming. To yeah. Both. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we'll kill one fifty nine. Bam. Um, one fifty nine. That's old news. One sixty is my new favorite number. Yeah. That's funny. Okay. 159, okay. 159, that might have been part of part of the problem. Years. That that probably fixed a, a couple of issues. And er, yeah. So again, we'll have another giveaway at the end of the show. Make up for that and and fix those problems. Okay. Uh, sorry. Yeah. So, be, you highly recommend Fluffy still? Even with uh, the new hair tools and
1: stuff? Uh, I think the new hair tools only work in HDRP or something. Is that right?
0: I, I believe so. That, that was my understanding. Yeah.
1: Well, there you go. Then I think that that solves it right there for you. I think in that world, then Fluffy is, is perhaps in some ways for some people far more valuable. In the future, I'm sure the hair tools will be built in. I know for my own hair and HDRP for the human hair and, and whatnot and, and all the other characters that use the hair shader i have mm-hmm. at this point i'm just telling people use if you're using hdrp in 2023 just use the built-in hair shader because my custom shader is broken again uh and there's no way i can it works fine with the hair shader so just use the hair shader and i i do long for the day though when i don't know if it will ever happen when there's just a default
0: whoops <laughs> sorry i broke that mm-hmm. No, there will be absolutely no more talking Andrew I tried to move
1: a thing there's a default what a default what the heck is going on a default hair shader that just works that everybody who produces hair meshes can create stuff with if you have a tool that creates grooming that you can it works with just because I think we all as indies appreciated the standard shader when it came out and over the years that's gotten we've lost that We need it back. Yeah. Uh, One centralized tool you can go to that just solves the problem. Yeah, like you could always make custom shaders. Standard shader existed, but you can make custom shaders still. It's just you didn't have to. And for 97% of use cases, you didn't need to. It was perfectly fine. So um, I like that. I think we missed that. I think folks missed that.
0: Um, Yeah, well hopefully it, it all comes together soon I know that was one of the things that a lot of people keep asking for the unified render pipeline one person in here specifically <laughs> comes to mind oh okay so let's see um, anyone take his buttons away for a little bit that's probably a good idea you gotta get take take my stream deck away I want to keep breaking things so um, Corvallis. You'd mentioned uh, something came out this week.
3: Yeah, it did. And completely dominated seven hours of my life last night. This is the reason we have the virtual background. Everything is a mess. And uh, I am still too tired to clean it. Because we're playing more of it later. Uh, Persona 3 Reloaded was a JRPG remaster that came out literally seven... No, about 12 hours ago. And it's a remake of a 2009 JRPG, it may, remade in Unreal, and it is so pretty and so fun.
0: Can you tell everybody a little bit about it, it hasn't played Persona, like oh, the whole sure. series?
3: It's um, broadly a mixture of a visual novel style dialogue RPG, you walk around an overworld with a... More traditional like school elements, and it mixes with a dungeon crawler at night. So you go through procedurally generated dungeons, very simple layouts, but you get to fight monsters, increase your um increase your roster of not quite Pokemon, but personas. It's a bit of a um I don't want to say collectible monster game, but kind of. It's hard to describe on four hours of sleep, but very fun. And a what I find so interesting about it is because it's a remake of a much older game, there were design decisions that had to change from porting it over because that game had a a lot of remakes because it came out in 2009. There was a PS3 remake, a PlayStation, a PSP port for it. Then that port moved over to a PC port that had additional changes. And now we have a complete remaster and remake in Unreal. As a result, there have been a lot of modifications. Just looking at the design for what they chose to keep And what they chose to change is really fun. They wanted to keep that core older RPG or JRPG aspect in there. So like it uses procedurally generated dungeons. They abandoned that in later titles, but they brought it back here and tried to tweak it to make it less uh, less like repetitive, grindy, and bad. Because people usually said that was the worst part of the gameplay. But they've wanted to keep it and try to modernize it. So as a result, it gets hamstrung by some older design decisions but there are a lot of like really nice quality of life improvements like auto saving which was not a very common thing back in <laughs> uh, two thousand nine rpgs three hours gone because you got randomly crit now we have saves which is very nice saving
0: you don't just leave the system on and hope your mom doesn't turn it off so you don't lose your game
3: you just <laughs> turn off the tv okay it's off i swear ignore the ps3 wearing with a uh, high intensity fans I um I still have my old PlayStation 3. I re um I reinstalled it or set it up to play FES, uh, which was the original PlayStation 2009 version. And that thing, I've never heard that PlayStation scream more than when it was playing FES. Those fans were at full power all the time. And now it's nice to be able to just play it on my computer, and mod it, which is uh another rabbit hole of falling down. Palworld, this. I believe Metal Gear Solid uh, 3 is also getting a remake in Unreal that comes out this year. A lot of Unreal stuff, and I'm expecting probably a lot of moving in the Unreal modding scene because there's a lot of popular games people want to modify.
0: Anybody else play Persona?
1: I have not. No, I did try enshrouded shrouded this, this week, though. Oh, you're playing it this week? Well, I have played it twice, and by twice I mean I played it for an hour and then I played it for thirty minutes. So okay. I played it a little bit. Um, I was so we we talked about Power World last week, and mm-hmm. and and Uri was was and I think maybe others had mentioned Entrouted, and shrouded, mm-hmm. and it looked more like my type of game, and you know, sort of a fantasy ish theme with dungeons and stuff. It looked like there was more moving around, so I, I decided to buy it and try it out and mm-hmm. see what see what's what. Crafting is, games have never been my my thing. Uh, at least not heavy crafting. So I tried it, and it's it's fun. I did like that it has more actual like exploration of you know creepy areas rather than mm-hmm. the Pal world. You is this island, and I guess there's exploration, but I didn't really find it beyond just walking around the world. Um, and uh, so it seemed more exciting. It the crafting though did confuse me because I'm not into those games, and I was very it, it breaks for me it. it brings me out the immersion when I have to like chop down a tree and then build string and then take that string into fabric and then make the fabric into a shirt. And suddenly I'm like, that doesn't make any sense.
0: You don't want all of the the extra extra steps.
1: A lot of clicking. when all I really wanted to do was give me a shirt. If I have all the things for it, just give me the shirt, you know, can not follow the 50
3: step um, instruction flow chart for how to make a shirt. (laughs)
1: yeah yeah but so this is very much just subjective my i never got into pokemon i never got into minecraft so i i just don't have that background as a player in order to to be triggered by those you know patterns in my brain so um you know i like a little crafting you know mix a berry with another berry and get some sort of potion out that sounds fun put berry in fire baked berries survival game classic is that what happens? You put the berry in a fire and a
3: bigger berry comes out? It's just uh it's just baked berries, which to be honest, I've never eight. had. Yeah, even though it's open you know, I guess so. Yeah, even though it's more frying because it's over like an open flame, because you're not mm-hmm. really using an oven. Usually it's like a fire pit.
1: Yeah. I yeah, have no idea
3: why you don't want to bake your berries,
1: huh? Yeah. And, you know, in up, uh, my character was c- carrying around raw meat for a while, and I'm thinking, this is going to start smelling after a while. <laughs> your hands are all sticky. You're going to get salmonella or E. coli or whatever it is that you get from raw chicken. Yeah. <laughs> You're the meat man, though, okay? It attracts monsters.
3: Does it?
0: Oh. So there, there was a question in chat that I don't know how to highlight yet. I'm trying to, trying to figure out how to get... Uh... Get them to pop up, but about using uh, A-star pathfinding in multiplayer stuff. And I was curious if you guys had um, thoughts about this. Or there, I think the question specifically was, has anyone tried A-star or in a multiplayer game? I'm interested in using it to have NPCs find players within a range, which uh, I, I pinned it on YouTube. I'd I love to pop it up in here. But again, I, I'm a noob and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, but I have some thoughts on this. I'm curious if you all do, though. So on pathfinding in multiplayer games, and also maybe a little bit of note on that uh, finding things in range. So uh, I want to let anybody else jump in first, though.
3: I've used A star not in a multiplayer setting, so I only no. have some familiarity with that. Because multiplayer increases what you're actually trying to um, what you're trying to
1: accomplish. Yeah, wouldn't that? Wouldn't only one of the like the, the host of the multiplayer game be the one that would end up using it because the rest just have to f- follow along right. Um, we- essentially, yeah. So I
0: mean, that's kind of one of the things I mentioned there is that for most multiplayer games, that would only be running on whatever the server or the host is. That that A star. <laughs> Set up, And that would make it really relatively simple if you're doing it that way. There are some scenarios where you want them to do that pathing, path and then you probably still don't want them to calculate the pathing, path but you might want to replicate the path over the network where you have the host or the server calculate out a path, and then you send over all those path points and then have that um, be done on the clients. But a lot of the time, what you do with A star or with any NavMesh-type system is you'll set up the destinations on the server or host and then the object will move on the server and host and then just replicate across on the clients and it's not really any different than if you're doing it... um doing it locally what you don't usually want to do is have all of the clients trying to calculate out the best path or the way to get there and have npcs do that movement locally because you'll find that they'll definitely end up taking different routes it's like a lot of the time it'll be the same but occasionally they'll split up and do something totally different and your game will be completely out of sync so there's no reason not to use something like a star or nav mesh with um with your multiplayer games just remember that you really want to be calculating that path on one system nine i'd say 98 99 of the time um yeah and then and for the distance checks you almost never want to be looking at the path either though you, you usually are looking at actual, just direct physical distance, and then line of sight. Doing raycast, make sure that it's not you know they're in this room and you're in this room on the other side of the wall. They shouldn't see you. So you don't necessarily want a distance check, and you don't necessarily want a pathing distance check either, because you don't want like you know you're up on this little tiny ramp and you're you know one meter away, but it's a twenty meter walk around the ramp. You don't want them to not be able to see you in aggro. That that would be strange as well. So. Those are my kind of general thoughts on it, but I don't know if you guys have other thoughts.
3: Nope. Pretty much in alignment. Don't replicate the work on the live side and keep it all unified. Cool. And did we lose Greg? Uh, He had to dip for lunch for a bit. Oh, okay,
0: okay. I did. I didn't see the message. I need to get that figured out. And yes, we are testing in production. It's a g- great question, Chris. <laughs> Trying out this new setup. I, I really do. Um, I like it more. I can put snow over everybody's head. I can put a logo over my face. Um, we can do quite a bit more stuff. But I just got to get used to the, uh, the setup. Get the stream deck and the the shortcuts and hotkeys and stuff all kind of figured out.
3: Um, you know, experimentation—it's yeah. the essence of being a game dev—is creating something kind of jank, but if it's fun, keep iterating on that and improving That's... it.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not, not, not building out the perfect thing all at once. Now, I was curious—did you all get a chance and or watch that stream yesterday with uh, uh, the ID folks? They did the 33rd anniversary stream.
3: I was able to catch some bits, but not
1: a whole lot. No, what, what I don't know what that is. What what is that?
0: Oh, I'll um, I dropped a link into our private chat. I'll, I'll put one in the description too. Um, but it was like Carmack and Romero and the other guys in there. Um, I don't know. Uh, but they were talking about uh, those are the two that people I would be most excited about. Like well, days. um, they were just yeah. in there chatting about the old days, chatting about you yeah. know, Id software how it's going there and stuff. It was just fun, interesting conversations. I, I always just love to watch anything that Carmack's talking about,
3: so <laughs> have fun with it. <laughs> it is a gold mine. and I believe the VOD is up too, so people can go back and watch it. You've got an hour or two to kill. Fun stuff to listen to. Yeah,
4: yeah. and there's also a second Steam uh, that was a month ago with affected uh, anniversary of Doom.
3: Oh. Oh, yeah, there was. It was about two months ago, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I gotta start following Romero on Twitch now. Bam, drop him a follow.
0: That was good stuff. I think Salim said his best interview ever was with the Romero. <laughs> I don't remember that story. Uh, I'm sure he's told it to me multiple times, but usually that's when we're out drinking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, how cheat programs track position? Oh, that this is an interesting question. So. So, in chat, they're wondering how cheat programs track position and similar data of players in multiplayer games and how you can hide that information um, as much as possible. So, again, anybody want to jump in first?
1: Hmm. I have no idea. Okay. Well what do you I mean, mean by cheat programs?
0: So like imagine you're you're playing a multiplayer game and you've got a little hack and it shows you where all of the other players are with an outline mm. and shows you their ammo and whether or not they're reloading and
1: all of that stuff. Oh, okay. Yes. Like actual cheats. Well, yes. Is it it could it be like I saw a thing about um cheen like in StarCraft where there's fog of war where the 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 game knows where the other things are but of course you don't because it's fog war so there could be another application on top that reads that data and then overlays information is that the type of thing that would be going on with that situation
0: very much so except it's a bit different in rts's and starcraft type stuff because the way that they're coded usually the um usually you want the clients to have all of that info for performance and and then and the network But for Mm -hmm. almost every other kind of game, like a first person shooter, um, an RPG or anything like that, an MMO especially, uh, it's typically the way that they work is that they're reading the memory because all of that data is being synchronized to the client. And the way to fix it is to not synchronize anything to the client that they shouldn't know about. If you're not explicitly putting it up into a user interface element or using it to control something visually on the camera character whether it's the position or like their visual hat or something like that you should not replicate that down if you care about this stuff now sometimes that just comes down to like you know you're doing item visuals you might not want to replicate the entire inventory of all of your players to other players so that they can see that and know all the items because then they could go like hey this guy's got something really good Uh, it's gonna highlight him i'm gonna go run right after him and go kill that guy right it'd be like an, an easy interesting cheat um, so instead, what you do is just replicate out the IDs of the visuals that are getting put on there instead of the actual items. So the player has the own in, their own inventory info, but the other people only see like the, the byte ID of which visual is showing
3: instead. Um, I and do want to um, add on a little bit to that because there are fundamental issues when you're trying to secure your game against hackers or otherwise unwanted modification. And the best way is just to keep that stuff off the client. If it's on a client machine, you cannot secure that information. A client has access to their own memory dumps, cheat engine. There's plenty of ways for them to read that or deserialize that information in some way. And there was a comment that I actually just read that was about like TF2, which has a heavy like bot problem. The there isn't a way to really stop someone who can just start an aimbot this is why you can eventually work on something like a band system or a really robust system where you can catch people cheating but like in an fps where fundamentally the only real information a player needs is where are other players and can i align my mouse to them these are just concerns you can't control as the server or someone is probably going to set up a cheat and can set up a cheat. But your best recourse is to just remove them. Like if there's unwanted behavior, you can set up trackers for that, having good report systems, user report systems, catching this kind of after it happens. Because it's an infinite arms race trying to secure a client machine and the hacker will always win in that arms race 99% of the time, short of like really robust Anti modification solutions like I believe the newest Denuvo still hasn't been um, cracked yet but so you might not want to design your entire game system around that having good anti report having good report systems and separating your basic concerns is the safest you can do when you have a multiplayer game.
0: Yeah, I think as long as you just stick with the rule of send over as little as possible, send over only the bare minimum data and only send it to the people who need to know about it, uh, it'll go a long, long way in your cheats. So you can minimize a lot of that stuff. Um, and one of the other things that's really important to pay attention to is um, just standard observability of objects. Like your player in a lot of games. Should not be able to see and be getting replicated all of the enemies or all of the NPCs in your area. It, of course, depends on your game. If everything's in one screen, sure they should. But if you got a big game where you're running around and there's there's lots of stuff going on, only the data, the stuff that should be near visual to them or impacting them, should be replicated, and all the other stuff should be segmented off. It's a you've got to keep that observability is an important mm-hmm. thing. Um, and then the final part is obviously somewhat, not, not, not as much related to it, but just always assume that whatever you get from the client is an attempt at cheating. I always assume that every bit of data, every message that comes across, they are passing in negative 1 million and seeing what happens, trying to cheat, trying to pass in it, it, all kinds of bad data. And you just, it's very important to just never trust
4: That was the one I was going to mention. Yeah, because a lot of people talk about the direction of um, not giving away too much information. And as you said, things like uh, people try for performance to send all of the unit data in like an RTS for fog of war stuff. But then, as we pointed out, if it's in memory, it can be found, it can be used, it can be, you know, generated. And that's why a lot of the cheat software is often sidecar applications that you you have to detect by checking literally the uh, running apps on the machine for IDs to match to make sure a certain software is not running because you can't always detect because um, it's not always injection, right? Sometimes it's a parallel running application with overlay effects and that kind of stuff. Uh, but the point you bring up, I think, is the more interesting point because it's the one that often is harder to figure out what to do. Um, mm-hmm you might have like a a move, just a good old-fashioned press button equals, you know, movement, and then that movement is calculated to move velocity, which recalculates position, and then you're like, put me in new position, me plus five forward or something. And that sounds reasonable, but even if there's no way conceivably to access that number normally, there's a whole pile of methods of recompiling and rewriting that function so that you're sending data that's like, move me 10,000 units (laughs) or, you know, or the more accurate one, you see this a lot in in hack and cheat stuff is uh, jump flags being reset at the end of frames. And so that's what people do, that (laughs) constant hover. So it's just like a perpetual hover, right? So um, that's why you'll often see those like, whenever you see like hacked teleports they often have this weird jerky motion because they can't stop the velocity calculation but what they can do is keep doing the reset which is often have a staggered delay and so you get that like hop flying thing that they do you know um so yeah that that's one that's that's an interesting one too and it's worth noting too that at the end of the day you're sending data packets and so it's not even if you're smart about it you don't even have to modify the game sometimes depending on how it's done you can literally mm-hmm inject at the point of the network traffic and then like literally modify packet transfer that's uh, depends on your skill set that, that that's can so be harder good. but like the yeah the, the point is it's multifactorial in terms of the information both towards and back and as jason was saying you want to make sure that you're aware that the data coming in can be untrustworthy and as a final note on that if you want to really learn this stuff because it is fascinating to know even if you're not going to develop for it um there is an mmo called um pwn Pwn World, as in PWN, mm-hmm. um, and, you can go, pwn. Yeah, and you can basically go to that, and it's an MMO which is designed to be hacked. It's like an adventure which is actively broken in numerous ways, and the only way to get around things is to use exploits, and it's purposefully built to have exploits, and then there's tons of online tutorials on how to actually exploit it, and it teaches you these processes, like how do I cause integer overflows or, you know? <laughs> mess with my jump flags or modify my move speed and then you get to see all different solutions to problems like people make themselves very fast people teleport people you know cause physics bugs that launch them across the map like whatever way you want to do to solve problems you can but that's kind of the point right they're demonstrating all of the ways an mmo can be broken that's actually
3: uh, really cute and fun it's spelled pwn world right
4: that's the one, yeah. It's Pony Island, and then Pwn World is the specific, yeah.
3: Okay, because I'm, I'm typing in Pwn World, and I'm getting PWN Global. Oh, sorry.
4: I think it's... That. Yeah, I just checked. It's Pwn Adventure 3. That's the actual... Okay. Um, so it's oh. Pwn Adventure 3, Pony Island. <laughs> that's, the, that's a ridiculous <laughs> name. It's a great name.
3: That's an amazing David. That's also fun, because there is... Admittedly, I love um doing, like, modification, playing around with mods, and especially the less... Of an SDK or less well supported, the game is the harder it is to mod. You have to use cheat engine these other tools, and doing that gives you a nice respect for game architecture. Where it's okay, I really, really want to make this this stat change. The enemy data is really far away, so I have to use the most convoluted ways to get around and inject into the normal game systems and frameworks without breaking it. But also using a series of tools, <laughs> ethical hacking, okay, for nice single player mods. It is fun though.
4: Uh, in particular i recommend if you're interested in this area there's a youtube channel called live overflow which not only demonstrates like goes through this game and demonstrates it but literally does the same thing in unity builds their own server game with a bunny rabbit where you have to basically again the game can be won by hacking it that's sort of the premise and so that's another great way to highlight in unity specifically how you would be able to be hacked and what you might do to resolve some of these issues
0: Yeah. I think anybody who hasn't played with hack programs and cheated in a game before is missing out. Like you need to do that to see how it works, what happens and what other people are going to do to your game. Especially if you're working on a game where it actually matters. If you're working on a game where cheating doesn't matter and it's fine, it's single player, whatever. But if you're ever building a multiplayer game, um, you should play with cheat apps, play with the memory editors, and just go try them out do it in some single player stuff or some multiplayer stuff where it's not like competitive online where you're just doing you know you and your friends or whatever, and go see kind of how that works and how you just randomly your RPC is sending something different or your data can't change or you trans you teleport your position and see what happens it's it's an interesting I definitely...
4: experiment, I think. Specifically the memory editors and um, learning about things like uh, creating your own list of operations in sort of an emulator or something. I think both of those things are sort of vital to learning general computing because they teach you so much. Like so much is suddenly understandable when you're like, oh, I'm thinking in terms of integers and strings over here. But when I go to the editor, it's just this giant wall of gibberish, but it's like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> once you start looking at it and learning it you genuinely have that moment of like oh i see the matrix i can literally start to see repeated patterns of bytes that are like oh that's hex four i know in memory i've stored this thing and it's the number six and well i can't off the top of my head recognize what six over time through messing with it you can see patterns and you can get like, oh i bet you that's the health number because like, I've got an item to it. <laughs> yeah exactly it's, it starts to be really fascinating so it gives you a whole different perspective on how you look at that stuff and yeah. um Similarly with like how operations are done in um, you know, how they're actually split up into pushes on stacks and things. That teaches you a lot about how that stuff works. And if you want a really good way to learn that, there's a bunch of guides on how to build your own Game Boy emulators. And basically learning how to take literal hardware, writing virtual versions of it, and then replicating the tables that match the operation calls that would go to that hardware, and you can—it's like writing it all by hand is obviously a lot of work. What you can do is it teaches you at least conceptually all the parts of like, oh, this is how this stuff works. <laughs> this is literally how it all connects together. It's very educational.
3: Mm-hmm. Creating virtual <laughs> hardware in my uh, assembly class, we made a virtual computer all the way from the very basic logic gates to the logic gates that built a CPU that could then run. Uh, hack code, which is just a simplified instruction set, we could pass through it. Very fascinating. Great learning opportunities, and all of this came about mostly because when Persona 5 Royale came out on PC, I really wanted to mod it there is no SDK for that game. So I had to learn assembly, signature signaling, just to swap two soundtracks. One would play when you'd like start a battle normally, another would play when you start an ambush. Just to swap those two tracks, I could find the memory addresses of where those tracks were located, write a program that would actively swap the two, and also, the program had to be pseudo dynamic because the memory address changes. Your game can be anywhere in memory, but there are very specific byte codes that identify what that is. And then the rest of the byte codes that, you know, maybe placeholder filler for whatever it may be in Ram. So making that dynamic and not break work on other people's machines was a really fascinating, fun memory experiment.
0: Sounds interesting. I I love doing hardware stuff personally. Like that, it was where I kind of started, so get all into that. Um, uh, into it. Uh, I, I'm going to drop off for two seconds, but I wanted to pop up the chat over my head. I just have to run in and fix something real quick, but I wanted to pop up chat over my head. There were a couple interesting things coming up, um, and there was one... <laughs> about world of warcraft's anti-cheat stuff with this have you guys looked into this i know like anti-cheat in world of warcraft has always been a big thing because obviously there's tons and tons of botters and um tons of cheaters and in those ones like i don't know what their lua anti-cheat is but yeah the anti-cheat stuff there it's like a whole giant
3: big problem it's a whole industry the yeah. whole, um, whole sub-discipline of computer science, which is just specifically hardware, hacking, and security. I guess in general it would be... Um, well. There's like exciting. a
0: whole industry of just uh, World of Warcraft cheats too. Oh, we're we losing Greg? Oh, sorry, Greg. Good good to see you again. Yeah, we'll on, see Greg. you again um, Hi, Greg. next Thanks. week, if not sooner. Uh, I guess I'll, right. put, I'll put the chat over hey, Greg's y'all. head. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah like there's whole industries that popped up just around you know cheating in those games farming bots i mean i'm sure you've all seen plenty of pictures of the the farms of gold gold farmers out there you know rooms full of them Um, and then obviously automating that and cheating and hacking and stuff is is a huge thing there so it's like it's one of the I feel like with MMOs, especially, or any long-term persistent game with an economy, it's one of the biggest problems that you run into is it, it, trying to prevent the economy from getting destroyed by constant influx of automated uh, you know, money generation. Kind of like what we do with the real government, right? Printing money is Like, here's more money coming in. oh. <laughs> <sighs> I'm not Uh, sure
3: what Blizzard's doing for. um, Also, you have to head out, right, Jason, for a bit. uh,
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll be right back.
3: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what Blizzard's doing for their personal anti-cheat. I know recently Riot um, moved over their their proprietary anti-cheat from Valorant to League of Legends, so that was like an improvement or an attempt to improve on their part because League had some bot and scripting issues. It did screw over people who like to mod their user interface, though, because that's a very hands-on anti-cheat. The ch- anti-cheat can't tell if you're doing something cosmetically or if you're directly modifying the game in advantage. Usually all of this gets wiped out when you do a hardcore... Especially
4: research. in this day and age, too, because I remember one of the early... Um issues in overwatch uh hacking stuff is there's the obvious ones like the, the, the you know the, the hacking of the game but mm-hmm. one that came out that had people really question the validity is there was a uh, assessor which literally did no modifications to the game whatsoever it just took screen captures and assessed state of play and did things that are like common skill check stuff like alt tracking one of the mm-hmm. one of the most important things the higher you go up the ladder in that game and a lot of similar games Is being aware of the timers roughly for each hero how long it takes for them to get their big ability and you're waiting for opportunity costs for when a person is ready to do a big move and you're like okay cool i need to prepare in advance and so that can be a lot to keep track of and the game basically was doing this it was overlaying data on the screen that was like your enemy most likely has these things at these times based on the in-game timers based on this that and the other and it's like. It give gave you a lot of ex uh, kind of contextual information that is just beyond human ability. But mm-hmm. from that like asterisk asterisk, it didn't do anything wrong. It didn't cheat. It didn't use in-game data. It had the same information you did on the screen, but it's still suspect because like it is a it is an advantage that is well above what anybody would have. And now, it turned out to be a bit rubbish because it was one of those early prototype AI stuff anyway that, has, that, that its actual suggestions were were not great. But mm. the actual like concept as a thing, that's an interesting gray area to your point, right? Because overlays are like, where is it cheating? And there's even people who say the same thing about things like monitors with custom crosshairs. Like if games don't have those and you're using mm. a monitor crosshair, you know, stuff like that can be can be vaguely in that category too. Yeah, like um, another
3: interesting one for Blizzard is for Hearthstone. I didn't know about this, so recently I hit Legend, yay. Um, But there are deck trackers where it's an overlay that keeps track of everything happening on screen. And I know for certain, I personally could not keep track of everything related to what cards are in what deck, at what position, what cards have been played. But the deck tracker exponentially improved my play because it's able to keep track of that contextual information. And basically every top Hearthstone player uses deck tracks because there's so much that can happen. When someone plays a secret, I'm sorry, what like year of card rotation are we in? What secrets can this be for like what mana cost and what effects can they have? Mm -hmm. Or even something as simple as like the deck type I used to play, which was um, a sludge warlock. The whole concept of that deck is you generate sludge cards that go at the bottom of your deck. And the goal is when you burn cards at the bottom of your deck, you do damage. So keeping track of how many cards are at the bottom, it's very important because that's the difference between you can suddenly kill someone who might not know I've been stacking like 30 damage worth of uh, cards at the bottom of my deck versus I messed up and miscounted. I didn't have enough and I overextended my own card usage. That's an interesting area where uh, Hearthstone doesn't crack down on them. Matter of fact, I believe in Blizzard's app explicitly, they advertise a different deck tracker. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be very much uh, approved. But,
4: yeah, there's uh, And there's there's other stuff, stuff stuff. too, that fall into that category. The, like, utility applications. Another one that comes Mm -hmm. to mind is games like Elite Dangerous or, um, honestly, even any any space game, realistically, especially games with economies. Yeah, there there tends to be, like, Mm real-time stock exchange applications that people build that are, like, sideloaders that that keep track of the in-game data regarding fluctuation rates like I remember again back in the day in using in Elite Dangerous a tracker to tell you what the most optimal path to take for to like maximize your trade routes because there'd be which trade route based on based on my ship size based on my cargo hold based on the number my maximum jump depth from the the particular uh jump drive I have where's the furthest I can go to get the maximum amount of money by buying from this station and selling to this station right now again that's all within conceptually within game but there aren't features for that it is it is extraneous data like you have to go and acquire it from somewhere it's usually like aggregate server stuff it's not actually in the game per se but yet it's a it's a common occurrence right so the question becomes do, does that count um hmm. personally i found that was almost entirely beneficial to the experience because it made it feel like you're looking at a job board and you're like planning your day and it really brought the feeling of being a you know going go on a fucking space adventure. yeah like a
3: yeah. full tracker it helps exactly for yeah. um It's an even more interesting, like philosophical question of what is cheating in this case, because if, especially if it's a data aggregator or collector, that already takes information that the user has access to visually and just perfectly recollects it. Then if you really want to play the role of like a space captain going through, you would of course have a little tool like this that would just automate that part of the process and remove that cognitive load. Yeah, there is some skill in being able to do that all in your head, but there's also a question of: Is it even fun for me to do all of that in my head? If I need a copious amount of information at any given time, and this tool helps offload that, does it make the experience better or worse? Is probably a better question than is it or isn't cheating. And then course. there's
4: then there's a side load of stuff that could be used for that purpose, but is also just used for whimsy. Uh, my favorite example of that is also elite dangerous. I just think it's it is the coolest, smartest example of a game modification I've ever seen. Um, there's an app completely standalone, not associated with Elite Dangerous, just called Voice Attack. Voice Attack is a pretty basic app in and of itself. It is just your good old fashioned action command rule builder with mm. a voice prompt. So you literally type word. If you've ever used um the Stream Deck uh, tool and like specifically made like action commands that stack and stuff it's exactly the same it's you do or, or um, a really lightweight version of Auto hotkey or something it's just mm-hmm. you stack commands and you say if this do this effectively but the cool part is again it's, it's a voice detector so you you, you put, type your words you do the thing and you build it up now there's a million ways you could use that to do voice commands for your ship and yes it feels kind of cool but that's like Honestly, it's often slower and worse, performance-wise. It's not like a good experience to just be taught. Talk- it, it's, 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 yeah, it's fun, but it's not super practical.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: The 10x level above this, which is so mind-blowingly clever, in my opinion, is what the voice attack people did is they pre-built the shortcuts for the game, where basically they just rebound all the shortcut keys to these commands with words. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's kind of cool. But then they had wave files generated for an AI ship computer, and they peppered those in. So you would say activate thrusters and it would just basically press the keyboard shortcut as if you'd done it yourself but then you'd have an ai voice give the whole activating the thrusters you know doing the whole thing afterwards and then it was just so fun because they had this whole stack of stuff with pre-baked commands and then they kept uh, they kept increasing their roster to the point that they have like a ship encyclopedia where they had famous science fiction actors and authors and stuff read out the full like Welcome to the planet Ares, da, 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 the whole big thing, right? So now you've got a ship computer that you can ask, oh, what's that planet? Give me, a, give me the stats on the planet nearby. And it's all elaborate in this like fun way that's technically, it's bootlegging someone else's game and, so, and a different app they didn't write to simply play an audio file for you. But the, the experience it gives you 10x is both things. It genuinely makes you, when you've got Brent Spiner giving you, like, floral storytelling around the game in your space adventure when you're in VR with the motion controllers, it's like, this is just pretty top tier. Like, very few things match the, like, sheer level of awesomeness that's going on with all of those, you know?
3: Exactly. That's why I'm, I always generally lean more toward modification or open modding. There's so many tiny things you can end up creating such a fun experience for. And this is also why a lot of games try to move toward user-generated content because they figured out, oh, wow, I can keep my app basically indefinitely alive because players will find new design use cases for modifications and mechanics they implement that dramatically increase experience. Even if it's not for everyone, if you want that experience, you can opt into 10xing your experience. and. There's not really a harm to it there. The only issue is when multiplayer comes in as like an overhead or something has to be online, now there, it becomes this race interaction where, okay, are you using it fairly armed to you? How hard do I have to crack down on competitive usage or not? Or if you want to have the um, design conversation, and this is a fun one. Well, I say a fun one. It's just like kind of, it's a contention as old as time, which is if you have access to like immediate information, are you cheating when you're actually in the process of like playing a game, you could have that information. But let's look at like tests, for instance. Tests are usually meant to remove contextual information just to test what you have immediately on hand, even though in the real world, no one's going to lock down your computer and say, you can't Google this in order to figure out this problem. But the purpose of the test is to hopefully test your mechanical process rather than just raw memorization because raw memorization is infinitely cheap. There's a reason we have computers do it. They're infinitely better at it. It's not that valuable of a skill as opposed to the processes of using that information.
0: I just love that in your world, nobody's going to make you take the test without Google. <laughs> we weren't even allowed to have a book in the room. Like, you get a pencil and a piece of paper. <laughs> It makes it I remember funny. having to lift
4: up your calculator to show the back of it because people would stick notes to the back of their calculator. Well, my daughter actually
0: had to like show her legs and her arms and stuff at the cer- board like certification test stuff. Yeah,
2: <laughs>
4: you were
1: <laughs> no. calculators.
4: Well, yeah. what, what the smart people would do if, if you were if you were really like again big braining this, you would get a piece of paper and you would cut it to the length of your pen or pencil. And you would write all your notes on that, and then you'd get a piece of tape, and you'd open the pencil, and you would roll it up around the actual ink cartridge on the inside of the pen. And that way, you'd have a pen that's a normal pen, but you could open it and then roll out your little uh, your little sheet of paper with all your notes. <laughs> no one look. That sounds like more <laughs> effort than
0: memorizing the couple things that are on the sheet.
3: I was about to say, it creates all of these interesting um, application cases where all of a sudden I'm spending way more effort just cheating than actually memorizing
4: <laughs> the Especially if you're trying to do it right, because if you really are going to 10x your cheating ability, what you have to do is cut a small hole in the pen so you have a sliver and then you basically tack something to the other side of it so it actually has a slot. So you don't have to open the pen, you can basically just hold it in your hand and like unroll it and roll it back. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, not that I did any of this, of course. <laughs> I'm just highlighting that there
0: were, in fact, know, fact. If you like to buy one really. on
3: Amazon there, here's Jason Sling. And it is a very big difference, too, between like, old or newer forms of education, depending on the domain. Some, some fields have caught up better than others. But an example, personal examples, like in college, there's, uh, there, there was one of my classes. That class very much wanted you to do root memorization, and it wouldn't even help. And it was all in one horrific HTML long list of like, well, oh, it was the most unergonomic horrific thing to look at. So as a result, there was a non insignificant number of people who decided to opt to a different, a solution. Hypothetically, it's the pro, when you make the process of learning more incentivized for cheating, that's how you get these issues. And even though you can write the harshest, most severe punishment mm-hmm. possible anywhere, it's a matter of incentives. What incentives are you creating? And if you usually create a nice, healthy learning environment with like easy access to materials, but I'm going to test your process. You're going to end up with less of that because
4: you're not incentivizing yeah. that kind of system. That being said, one thing that this is just a personal thing I noticed. So when I was in college learning programming, um, there was a, I think I mentioned whatever, ninety ninety two ninety four 94% dropout rate. Like mm. most people who took that course just absolutely bombed it. But the pernicious thing about that is it weirdly enough, I felt like programming is one of the easiest things to coast in because you can literally get really, really far without a damn clue of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how bad this was until we had um, a couple of lessons where the lecturer was like, we're doing a coding exam on paper and it wasn't end of the world. It wasn't a huge deal, but it was things like create a class, give it a constructor, create a setter. And set the health and age, which sounds like a very simple thing. But what it does it is sounds it like day some... three. Yeah. But like this was like this is, you know, six months to a year in, right? So but the thing is is that what it what it does that it highlights is a lot of people fundamentally didn't know the difference between arguments and fields or scope. And so they just knew the word was age, and if they wrote age equals in the right places enough times, stuff eventually works. And what that meant was because I was tutoring people. Like literally I spent a lot of time <coughs> tutoring these people and I would see them confuse things. And it would be this like, the big one for me was the whole this dot. The reason I switched to using underscores as my field types mm-hmm. is because I noticed a lot of people didn't understand the difference between the scopes. Mm-hmm. Like age in brackets versus age at class level. And so having <laughs> an underscore is at least, at least visually delineates the people you're tutoring. These are two different things. They say mm-hmm. the same word, but they are two fundamentally different in memory numbers of how they work. And without that, my point is I would watch people take tests that have been writing code, more complicated code, and succeeding halfway through their course year. But when asked to write the most simple, straightforward two lines of explanation of just assign a variable to another variable, they couldn't do it. Because they didn't know, they were literally missing the word void in their method calls. Because they completely wrote muscle memory and all of this stuff and just went, oh, I just press the thing and the autocomplete does the stuff that makes the things happen. Um, and it's fine to use Autocomplete as an ongoing workflow helper, but if you get to the point that you completely never knew-